It really is incredible. You can almost say it's laughable. At one month, there's already a face, even though he is smaller than a grain of rice. At two months, his ears, arms, and legs are starting to form. Between three and four months, tiny eyelashes, fingernails, and hair starts. He can even yawn. At month five, muscles start to move. Mandy said that it felt like a flutter. And by six months, he has a unique set of fingerprints, also hiccups. At seven months, this is where dad gets the headphones because he can hear and respond to the Beatles, a very crucial point of development. <clears throat> by eight months, it's starting to get a little annoying because he's treating mom's bladder like a trampoline. But by, by nine months, he's blinking, reaching, grasping, moving, ready to go. Isn't it incredible? Almost laughable. We have three kids, and I remember every time Mandy told me that she was pregnant. And if you're a parent in this room this morning, you've had that experience. There's this wonderful collision of emotions from like nine different angles, right? It's like terror and fear and joy and like, oh my gosh, right? I remember when we went to the hospital and I got to hold each one of them for the first time. They got that little blue and pink little hat that every hospital in America has. Nurse leaves. Lights are down, Mandy's resting, and I'm holding this person. And my face does one of those, like, ugly cry things where you just go, like, don't drop it. <laughs> it's really something to think about, right? This thing, this person, <laughs> this individual, a human being, from the splitting of millions and millions of cells, this connective tissue that all forms, and beyond all the physiological development, then there comes personality and thought life, creativity, a deep soul. A living person is a baffling reminder of God's creative and sovereign genius. Isn't it incredible? Almost laughable. So Hebrews 11. I'm going to take a look at two verses here to start things off. You can... Grab it in your Bible, or you can follow on the screen or flip there on your phone. Hebrews 11, verse 11. Here's what it says. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was well past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Let's pray. God, this is such a curious story. This is such a curious glimpse into such a strange snippet of history. The life of somebody who is so surprised by what you did. God, let us all be surprised by what you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the third week of our fall sermon series called Vintage Faith. This is seven weeks looking at seven examples of what it means to live a faithful life. And this week we're fo focusing our attention on a young mother. Well, kinda. This is the story of Sarah, and we're calling it a patient faith. 
She's patient, but she falters. She's hopeful, but she's honest. Her faith is commendable, but she is also so deeply and almost comically human. If you've ever wondered if faith has margin for error, Sarah is for you. Her life isn't perfect, but God still commends her for it. Her faith, if it was a tightrope, she walks it with shaky knees. But ultimately, Sarah's story teaches us that your plans may get you what you want, but God gives you what you need. Hebrews 11, those verses we just read, I feel like it's important to say that this is the portrait of Sarah after the ink has dried. The story has been written, the pen is put down, the book is closed. And so we see Sarah's life at the end in Hebrews 11. But like so many things, it's important to see the work in progress more than just the finished product. We first meet Sarah at the end of Genesis chapter 11. She's 10 years younger than her 75-year-old husband, Abraham, a wandering shepherd who's the second generation in the family business. And the only thing the text tells us in Genesis 11 about Sarah is simple and sobering. Here it is. Sarah was childless. How'd you like that as the first sentence on your Instagram profile? Not how I would choose to lead off an explanation, but that's what it is. That's the most defining element of her life. And at this point, childlessness is unfortunate, but it's not a theological issue. Not yet. Sarah shows up again in the next chapter, Genesis 12, and a list of family members moving to a place called Canaan. Abraham is 75, which makes Sarah 65. Again, the text gives her a terse description. She's only described as the wife of Abram. In a patriarchal culture like the ancient Near East, women were viewed that way, basically the side dish to their husband's life. Interesting detail that I want you to hold on to for just a few moments. It's here that God speaks to Abram for the first time. Now, could you imagine that? Like the heavens split and boom, like God's talking to you. Here's what he says. I'll bless you. I'll make you a great nation. And then God gets specific. He says, I'll give this land to your children. Hmm. You can imagine Abram's response is two words. Wow! And wait, what? But before anything lines up, a famine comes and Abram moves to Egypt. The fertile Nile River Delta was great because he was a shepherd and he had flocks. And this gave him a place to feed his flocks with good grasses and it gave him a place for the flocks to drink. There was a lot of water there, so this makes sense. And Abram does something amazing as they enter Egypt. In a move of self-protection and personal preservation, Abram tries to pass Sarah off as his sister. Here's literally what the text says. Say you're my sister so that I may be treated well and my life will be spared. Well, hello, accessory to my life plan. It's a little degrading, but Sarah goes along with it. And here's the odd thing. It works, kind of. Abram becomes extremely wealthy while he's down in Egypt. What's the lesson? God helps those who help themselves, right? 
Isn't that what the Bible teaches? It seems that even though God's blessing is a covering for this aging couple, their day-to-day relationship with him has a tone of self-righteous cynicism, a streak of stubborn independence, and a do-it-yourself attitude that provides its own insurance policy. I have no idea what that feels like. But is independence really a big deal? Right? I mean, God gave us brains. We should use them. Is it a bad idea to have all our bases covered to make sure that we don't have any gaps in our strategic planning of our life? Is this a big deal? After 10 years, Abram and his extended family are settled back in Canaan, and God comes to Abraham a second time. This is where Pastor Micah led us last week. Here's what he says. Abram, I've got you. I'm going to give you a son in my timing. Abram checks his watch and he goes, hey God, I don't know if you know how this whole baby making thing works, but we're kind of running out of time here. Here's where things get crazy. Up until now, Sarah has been the sidecar, the supporting actress, the understudy to Abram's quest and search for belief. And then in Genesis chapter 16, she takes center stage and she does the unthinkable. Let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Dun, dun, dun. Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. That is a strong indictment. Go into my servant, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. That is a heartbreaking Four and a half verses, isn't it? In a subtle twist of irony, Abraham and Sarah's roles are flipped. In Egypt, it was Abraham who was the self-conniving, self-preservationist. Sarah was a willing accomplice. And now here, Sarah is orchestrating all the self-protection and Abraham is along for the ride. But what's most gut-wrenching about this whole entire thing is they knew better. They had to have talked about it When God comes to you and says, here's what I'm going to do for you, that's not something you keep from your spouse. Ten years, you haven't talked about this. Well, maybe it has an expiration date on it, God. Maybe maybe God forgot. Maybe God isn't good. And that's always the question, isn't it? Curious. When things are going really well in our life, we pat ourselves on our back for our ingenuity. But when life starts to implode, how quickly we shift the blame to God. I'm not sure if you caught the parallel to another story where God's goodness is in question, so so let me pull this forward for you. Here's the grammar. So she said to her husband, so the serpent said to the woman, and she took her slave, and she took the fruit, 
and gave her to her husband, and gave some to her husband. Coincidence? And I know, I know, if you were there, you would have done things differently, right? No, you wouldn't, and neither would I. Because the trial of God's goodness is open every single day, and too often it's a hung jury. It's the same old story. This choice has been modeled for us by our spiritual great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, and now here, Abram and Sarah doing the same thing. We choose the easy thing over the hard thing. We choose the well-trod, accessible path instead of, instead of working to find the ancient one. We choose sight when we should choose faith. You and I, we are calculating opportunists, preserving our plan over his promise. His timing is too slow, his provision is too thin, his invitation is too late. But more than that, we just don't like our stuff messed with. His expectations are unrealistic, and so his plan is unwelcome, and so eventually his goodness is called into question. Do you follow me? And again, just like Egypt, the plan works. Kinda. Hagar conceives... But this doesn't end well. In fact, it doesn't even really start well. God shows up right afterward, and he has a message for Hagar. Here's what he says. Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, what's all that mean? Abram, you're going to have a son Congratulations, I guess. But he's not the son of the promise. This is the fruit of your labor, not mine. What's the point? Your plans may get you what you want, but only God can get you what you need. By now, we can begin to string together a rough timeline. God comes to Abram the first time in Genesis 12. Abram is 75. Sarah is 65. He says, I'll give your son this land. Ten years go by, no son, twiddling his thumbs. He comes the second time, Genesis 15. Abram is now 85. Sarah is 75. He says, look at the stars, man. That, that's your household. That's your legacy. Just wait. Sarah says, enough waiting, take my maid. Nine months later, Ishmael's born. Now 14 more years go by. God comes a third time. Abraham is 99. Sarah is 89. Genesis 17 says this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. 
for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Notice how God just kicks Abram out of the driver's seat. (laughs) You catch it. He says, I will make you fruitful. I will make nations from you. I will make kings from you. I will establish my covenant. I will give you this land. I will be your God. Not a trick question. Who's doing the acting here? God. Because your plans may get you what you want, but only God will give you what you need. So what's Abram's response? You skip on down to verse 17 of Genesis 17. Here's what he does. Abram fell on his face and laughed. Said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. God says, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, I can be a little thick. But if God tells you something once, that's pretty important, right? If God tells you something two times, do you think he means business? How about three times? And if it still doesn't get through, where is the communication breakdown? Does Abraham get it? Nope. Look how he suggests his 13-year-old son. <laughs> he goes, look, how about, how about Ishmael? And God's going, stop trying to help me out. Very creative problem solving. You're a great planner, Abraham. I don't need your plans right now. I don't need your help, and I don't need your advice. I am God, and I am working my plan that is way bigger than you. Sit down and shut up for a minute. My interpretation So, we've got an over-eager shepherd and his tag-along wife. These two faithless Canaanites have this relationship with God that's more than a little touch and go. And all of this is introduction to Genesis 18. I'm aware of my time, but join me there. Genesis 18. This is the most defining moment in Sarah's story, and it's also the most mysterious. It starts off on a sleepy afternoon outside a tent, and then it gallops into this year-long theological journey toward God's goodness. Sarah's faith is open and exposed, but it's also challenged and strengthened. This is a story in four acts, although the fourth is separated from the first three by about nine months. And in our remaining time, I want to show you that your plans may get you what you want, but only God will get you what you need. Genesis 18, look with me in verse one. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran 
from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So, a few questions right off the bat. Who are these guys, and what is with the impromptu barbecue? It's interesting, the text doesn't explicitly say who all three of these mysterious visitors are, and we don't want to take unnecessary liberties. Theologians, some of theologians have speculated and said, wait a minute, three people? Like, with mysterious godlike qualities? Sounds like the Trinity. And my opinion and my interpretation is that's forcing the text a little bit. It's always dangerous to take our ideas and read them into the text. We do a whole lot better if we open God's word, let it fall open, and then we draw conclusions from that. Okay? Just a little tidbit for you. So what do we see here? It's interesting that Abraham, now an elderly, wealthy herdsman, likely well-respected by his neighbors and friends, shows such over-the-top hospitality. We can conclude that he thought these mysterious visitors were pretty important. The text says he hurried from his tent, and then he bowed low. I mean, he's making all kinds of planning. He's like, oh, we got to do this, we got to do this. And he's running around preparing food for these people. Now, if you come to my house for dinner, I'm going to give you a hug. I'm going to give you a high five, maybe a fist bump. Like, you're not getting that stuff. Verse 3 gives us a little clue as to how he saw these visitors. What does he call one of them? He says, oh, Lord. Interesting. There are cultural niceties, and then there are thinly veiled theological statements. This is the latter. (laughs) Maybe Abraham is testing the water, trying to discern their identity. Maybe he's just being overly kind, or maybe he realizes that one of these guys is the Lord himself. In any case, he shows extravagant generosity with the meal. Now, there's a bit of comedy here, because what's he say he's going to bring them in verse 5? He says, I'm going to bring you a morsel of bread. But what's he bring them? Cakes made from three seahs of fine flour. That's enough flour to fill a five-gallon bucket from Lowe's. Okay, that's enough flour to make 27 loaves of bread. You think it's a little over the top for three people that come to your house? Maybe. (laughs) And then meat, but not just meat, a choice tender calf, curds and milk. The cakes are like the appetizer. Think about it like garlic bread. A lot of garlic bread. The meat is the main course. This is his 12-ounce filet mignon, meant to show his social standing and his prosperity, probably both. The curds and the milk are the side dishes, meant to accentuate the taste of the meat and show his thoughtfulness to his guests. You put it all together, Abraham sees these three strangers as mysterious, but strangely very important. And perhaps one a little more important than the others. So he invites them to eat. His plan is working perfectly. He is both waiter and host. 
He's enjoying their favor just like he intended. He has planned and executed this whole scene masterfully. But one of these guests is about to blow his mind. Take a look in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Whoa, like momentum shift much? Weren't you going to compliment me on my awesome hospitality? More bread. (laughs) But then he continues. He said, she's in the tent. (laughs) The Lord said, I will simply, or I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, this is totally me, and again, we don't like to read things into the text, but I imagine there's a giant pause between, she's over there, and then what God says. One of the speakers shifts his weight, strengthens his tone, and looks Abram square in the eye and says, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And the light bulb goes on. At least you hope. I imagine this is where Abraham dropped his jaw and dropped his fork. They didn't have forks. Because he gets it. This just went from dinner party to worship service, from polite hospitality to reverential honor. All of Abraham's wonderful, perfectly orchestrated plans fade into the backdrop with one sentence. And does that language sound familiar? I will do this. This will happen. Do you think Abraham got the idea? I think he did. Have you ever been amazed at your own stupidity? I have. Sometimes our own stupidity costs us, doesn't it? Here's what I mean. So three and a half years ago, we were moving into our house, and we almost lost our mind with where everything should go, right? You've done this before. Like, where's the couch? Oh, it goes here. Okay, like this way? Okay, a little to the left. Got it. All right, cool. Table. Here it goes here. Set it up, yada, yada, yada. And we were like cruising along. Everything was great until we got to the TV. So... We put the TV, like, right on the little thing in the, I don't even know what it's called, in the living room. Like, we plug it in. Like, we get it all set up. Like, DVD player there, yada, yada. It looks perfect. Oh, tilt it. Great. Grab the remote. Nothing. I'm like, oh, no. Grab the remote. And I do exactly what you do. I grab the remote again, and I push harder. (laughs) That doesn't work. So I change the batteries, and I'm like, nope, all right. And so we kind of thought about it for a minute, and we concluded that after a couple of moves and a couple of months in storage, It's probably just busted because things break. Oh, well, such is life, right? A couple weeks go by, and, like, we kind of save up, kind of, you know, reposition some things, and then we had to Best Buy to get a new TV. Cool. Go get the new TV home. We get it out of the box. We set it up. We put it on the thing. Like, we tilt it, get it all plugged in, get the DVD player plugged in, yada, 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 get the remote, nothing. (sighs) (sighs) Nothing. Right about then, Mandy goes, what do you suppose this light switch does? <laughs> True story. <laughs> now, some of you are wondering if I have any common sense at all, whether it be desks or TVs. I cannot be trusted to lead anything more complicated than a light switch. So there you go. <laughs> How could you be so stupid? Like a $350 face palm, like, 
uh, I acted so rashly. What's the point? If we invest in our preservation apart from God's plan, we run the risk of losing God's provision. I'll say that again. If we invest in our preservation apart from God's plan, we run the risk of losing God's provision. Because that's really Abraham's deal right here, isn't it? What lie is he believing? I've got to handle this because God's out. God forgot about me. God has other things on his mind. God doesn't want this for me. God doesn't care. God's not good. God's not God. Your plans may get you what you want, but only God can get you what you need. Now here comes the best part. The most indicting part of this whole scene and the most ironic. Take a look again in the last half of verse 10. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And there's the question. Mic drop moment. Whenever you're reading your Bible, you've got to know that every text, every story has one meaning, one interpretation. And in the case of narratives or stories, it's usually buried in a line of dialogue or like a quick aside, just a little Bible study tip for you. In this case, it's this rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, interesting little tidbit. Abraham hasn't spoken since he went uh, over there. Well, let's pick it up. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Now, Sarah is far enough away where it's doubtful that a mere man could have heard her quietly laugh to herself under her breath, so the dialogue must be supernaturally discerned. But Sarah eventually overhears part of the discussion, and she's afraid. And here's what's really crazy. Her faithlessness is compounded by another sin. It's just a simple lie. And their guest, by now they know it's somebody other than just a simple guest, tightens the screws, closes out the scene by saying, yeah, no, you laughed. Nice try. Nice little shifty plan." but it isn't going to work. I'm doing something so much bigger, and you think you're laughing now? Just you wait. Your plans may get you what you want, but only God can get you what you need. Fast forward just nine months. Genesis chapter 21. <laughs> Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. 
And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. Now you may know this, but Isaac's name simply means laughter. And 20 years of prophecy are fulfilled in the coup of a newborn baby. Starlit skies and nighttime visions, provisional prophecy winning out over self-preservation and protection. What's Sarah's summary of the whole experience? At 90 years old, if you skip down a couple verses, she says this, God has given me laughter. Laughter that once sprang from disbelief now comes as the laughter of joyful worship. So what are we to make of this imperfect portrait of faith? Right, three things I want to toss your way. And they all begin with the letter W. That's not intentional. just sort of happened that way. So for those of you that like three points and alliteration, here you go. First thing that we should do in light of Sarah's story, one, wait. Wait. One of my favorite theologians, St. Thomas of Petty, Tom Petty, there it is, put it this way, waiting is the hardest part. (laughs) Why is waiting so stinking hard? Why? Answer, waiting reveals that I am not yet the person who's patient enough to handle the promise. And I don't like that because I want you to think I am and you want everybody to think that you are. God knows that if he gives me what I want before I'm ready for it, I will love the gift rather than the giver. And all of my little Ishmaels become idols to pull my heart away from him. God is more interested in making me the man I need to be rather than giving me what I feel I should get. And it's hard because it takes time. Because if your life is anything like me, it takes time for God to convince me. First, he's got to show me my heart. And I don't like to see my heart because it's scary in there. There's stuff I don't like to see. So he's got to hold up my heart to my face until I see it clearly. And then it takes time for me to actually believe that what I want is ultimately unfulfilling. And I don't like to confess that either because I think I know what I want and I think what I want is right. And then it takes time for me to see what his plan is. And then it takes time for me to accept the fact that he's sovereign over me and I'm not God over my own life. Do I paint a correct picture of anybody else in this room? Maybe you are way better than I am. I think we're a lot alike. Now, if you're not the kind of person who likes to wait, and I don't think any of us are, I have some sobering news for you. Abraham and Sarah had to wait 20 stinking years for God's plan. In our instant microwave, ready-to-go, online ordering world, faith has become a spiritual discipline right up there with fasting because I don't like to wait. And it demands I crucify my flesh. 
We don't wait so that God can give me what I don't have. We wait so that God can make me someone that I'm not. Those are very different things. So wait. Second thing that we should take from this text and this story, wait, walk, walk. I mentioned earlier that Sarah's faith has wide margins. Here's what I mean by that. I find a lot of comfort in the idea that Sarah is listed in Hebrews 11 with all these like, wonderful like, pillars of the faith, these examples of godly people who live their lives according to God's plan, but then her life, it took like a lifetime to develop. I find a lot of comfort in that. Hear me, faith isn't a tightrope that we have to walk perfectly, but we must walk forward. What is the church other than a gathered group of Sarah's? The trusting but doubtful, childless children of God with one foot resting on the rock of belief and the other one stretching out in certainty, hoping that he's there. And so we say with the words of the New Testament, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I love how throughout Sarah's story, God makes a point of not just saying what will happen to her, but who will make it happen. That's not a small detail. Here's why that's important. Christianity is not taking a position. Christianity is trusting a person. And that requires a much different part of my soul. In the war for belief, it's important to see the battle correctly. Our enemy is a character assassin, and he wants you to doubt God's goodness way before he wants you to doubt his competence. Because if he can get you thinking that way, man, he can get you skewed in the wrong direction quick. Because when your marriage is falling apart, you lose your job, your children go wayward. When your life implodes, positions don't mean a darn thing. Because if you can't trust God is good, everything else collapses. But if you've got that as the bedrock of your faith, he could pile whatever he wants on top of you and it doesn't matter. And so we walk forward in faith even if we have to crawl. Wait, walk, and thirdly, worship. It's interesting that the first thing that Sarah says, the text gives it, it's right there. The first thing she says after Isaac is born is God. Why is that important? God did this for me. God made this happen. God gave me laughter. That's a big shift from Genesis 18 where she's going, (laughs) I don't know. Worship is declaring what God has done. What if the overwhelming weight of every hardship in your life, the inescapable pain of every heartbreak, all these lost hopes and disappointed dreams, what if the weight of all of that belonged to God, not you? What if it wasn't your problem to figure out? What if it belonged to God? Because it's exactly what Sarah's trying to teach us here. As the best thing that we can draw from Sarah's story is that God fixes broken things. Isaac's birth is the story about a near laughable reality that when it comes to broken people like us, what is possible goes way beyond what's expected. It isn't about fertility. It's about a God that can do things that are way bigger than I could ever dream. And way different than what I want. 
Ironically, our greatest need is to become children. Maybe you won't be surprised that Isaac's birth prefigures someone else. Another mysterious son born in an unexpected way to another bewildered couple hundreds and hundreds of years later. Who would gather all nations to him? Who would have spiritual descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky? Who would bridge the gap between a broken people and a holy God and his name is Jesus? And if you know him, then you're free to worship him. And if you don't know him, you are missing out on the biggest plan that God could ever roll out. Your plans may get you what you want, but only God can get you what you need. So here's where we have to end today. Every birth is a miracle, right? Whether it's the birth of a newborn baby or the birth of a child of God. In our first birth, we enter this world kicking and screaming because we're cold and we're hungry and we're afraid. In our second birth, we worship in joy and the warm glow of our Heavenly Father. And that is incredible. Almost laughable. Let's pray. God, you are the giver of all good things. Forgive us for the times where we see your plan and say, "Mm, it's not enough. We see the beginnings of your provision and we ask you to hurry it up. Forgive us for the times we doubt your goodness. You are undoubtedly good and you are undoubtedly sovereign. You are working your plan since before time and you push it all forward and then you give us your son not just so we can have what we want, but so we can have what we need, adopted sonship and daughtership to you. God, we say thank you. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.